Hey Randy, we're recording this episode today while the most amazing things are going on over at Twitter and by amazing I mean it's kind of fascinating in a totally epic way. Yeah, it's it's incredible to watch things pivoting in real time with product decisions getting their first tests in production at mass scale. I mean, seeing a company experiment with changing their revenue model in public like this is I'm not sure if I have the right word for it. It's kind of horrifying and fascinating and wonderful for product geeks like us all at the same time. Yeah, I've never seen anything like this before, but we do know someone who was in the middle of a massive change in business model for a product that millions of people were completely passionate about and still are today. Leah Hickman, now partner at Silicon Valley Product Group, joins us on the pod. And Leah was one of the key people at Adobe when they moved over to a subscription model for the creative cloud. And there are just so many lessons there that are relevant for anyone working on that kind of change. History may not repeat, but it it does kind of rhyme. The Product Experience is brought to you by Mind the Product. Every week on the podcast, we talk to the best product people from around the globe. Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and discover more. Browse for free or become a Mind the Product member to unlock premium content, discounts to our conferences around the world, and training opportunities. Mind the Product also offers free product tank meetups in more than 200 cities. There's probably one near you. Leah, thank you so much for joining us this week. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. So uh, obviously, we know you. We've seen you talk before. We've had a chance, uh, had a chance to hang out with you for a couple of days over the summer, which was amazing. Uh, but for anyone who doesn't already know you, can you give us the two-minute introduction to who is Leah Hickman? <laughs> well, um, I am currently a partner at Silicon Valley Product Group, and I've been building products for about 30 years, which is hard to believe. Um, I actually first got introduced to products way back in the mid-90s when I worked for Marty Kagan, who you might know. Um, it was when I was working for Marty that I really fell in love with the idea of building products uh, for people, but also um, building products at scale and really trying to understand how to best need, meet the needs of a market as well as a set of customers. And so, yeah, now I get to travel around the world, thankfully, once again, and meet with product teams, big and small, to help them up their product game. And one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you today uh, is we want to reflect on on one of the jobs you had building something, well, pretty big, actually. But, you know, it's this really tumultuous time out there right now where you're seeing what Elon Musk <laughs> is doing with, with Twitter and changing business model kind of on the fly. We've seen things going on with, with Meta and Reality Labs and just trying to figure out where they're going. And yeah, so you led the, the change at Adobe from going from selling software to selling subscriptions. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It was a really big change at Adobe. And to be clear, I was one of many, many people who were involved in that transformation. Um, I always get embarrassed when Marty talks about that story um, because I, I do want to make it clear I was one of many. Um, but we were going through a significant change. At the time I was at Adobe, we were still actually selling boxed software. So I don't know if you remember back in the day, it was when if you wanted the latest version of the creative suite, you would buy it for something like $2,500. And we would typically release a new version of that product 
oh gosh, every 18 to 24 months. And our business model was based on people buying the full version or people upgrading to the latest version. And um, at the time, a few significant things were happening in the market, which really challenged us and forced our hand to really rethink what the business model was. And um, that's why we went from selling that desktop software to subscription services. And there were some internal factors as well as external factors um, that all led to that transformation. So if you're going through something like this, you know, you're going through a big change. Where do you even start as a product leader? How do you, you could start anywhere. What's a practical way to start for, for companies that are going through a massive change like this? Yeah, well, I think I definitely think um, data was what influenced us to explore the change in product and the change in business model. So the data, the insights that we got from customers and the insights that we got from um, actual usage, number of people upgrading, um, really exposed the fact that we needed to rethink how we were getting our products to market, how we were selling our products, how we were building our products. Basically, we had to rethink everything. And what we found at the time was that while everything looked great from a revenue perspective, um, there was an opportunity to really drive more uh, users to be on the current version of the product. And that required a significant amount of change. Um, Externally, we were facing some new technology challenges. Uh, the iPad was introduced. So our target customer, which was creative professionals, that's a very broad category. They wanted to do ideation on that magical device. And we really didn't have a strategy for how we were going to approach that. Um, Similarly, platforms like Dropbox and Box.net were helping our customers rethink the operating system. So instead of storing files and content on their desktop, now they were starting to store it in the cloud. And we really needed to have some sort of strategy around that. Also, um, social graphs were starting to be very important for communities of designers. And we really didn't have an answer for that. And then, um, of course, uh, how we were delivering software was a challenge because our competitors were out innovating us because we had to wait you know, 18 to 24 months to deliver value. And we couldn't do that on an ongoing basis. So there were a lot of challenges that we had to overcome. So what does that do to a business? You said it kind of forced your hand um, earlier. How did the business then come together? Because presumably then you have to create a strategy which answers all of those points that you've made, but also a a bit of a bet into the future as well, potentially. Yeah, there were about, um, I would say, eight or nine VPs at the time who started to dig into all of the different factors that some of which I just mentioned, the business operations data, the financial data in terms of sales, upgrades, et cetera. There was a great um, business analyst whose name was Michael. He was the one, I think, who first waved the flag and said, hey, we might need to dig in a little bit deeper here. And um, with him, we pulled together um, executives who were on the product marketing side, the product management side, the engineering side, sales side, basically this great cross-functional team. And we started to put all the information that we had on the table. We also had a a few key executives who really sponsored us to start digging a little deeper. 
And that was really the the first initial catalyst uh, to get the ball rolling, but it didn't, uh, pardon the mixed metaphors, but it didn't, um, it wasn't the be all end all yet. We really didn't have a solution to that problem. Uh, that took a lot of work to determine what that was going to look like. And what kind of work was that? Is that workshopping, prototyping? Like, how did you get to a pathway forward that you felt confident was going to address the the kind of the changes and the risks that were coming your way? Yeah, I mean, it was a lot of, um, we started with really digging into the overall customer journey, understanding what it was like, what a day in the life was for our customers um, and really deconstructing uh, what some of their major pain points were, what some of their problems were. And um, so we did a lot of exercises around customer journey mapping, visioning exercises. You know, our first vision for uh, the creative cloud was just absolutely horrible. It was basically a architecture diagram with all the capabilities that we thought we would have and, you know, really wasn't in the voice of the customer. And so we, we pivoted a lot uh, as it relates to that. We also had some internal headwinds where, you know, this was not the first time we tried services or, or subscription services at the company and all the previous attempts uh, were lackluster at best and didn't get any of the adoption that we needed uh, to really, you know, have that critical mass and solve that problem for the customer. So it was, it was workshopping, Lily. It was a lot of kind of putting those thoughts together, um, but we needed to have a compelling story. And that's where we needed to spend a lot of time visioning about what we wanted the future to look like for our customers. Was there a kind of a magic moment where you realized that that architecture diagram was not the way to go? Uh, I mean, <laughs> I've been in so many places where we've done the same thing. We've done a version of something. We've come at it from solving it from the company's perspective. And we don't have that moment where we turn or we don't have it until way too late. So, so how did you shift from from a bad path to out of this to to a good one? Yeah, well, I remember. Um, I actually think that first vision was something that uh, one of the execs put up at an offsite that we had, where we had all the product teams, a lot of the leaders in the product teams get together. It was at this really great place in Sausalito, California, and um, I remember looking at the architecture diagram, everyone looking at it, and it was basically the same architecture that every software company could declare at that point in time because everyone was facing the same existential threats, right? Mobile devices were incredibly powerful and your ability to create content on them was quite compelling. Everyone was wanted to leverage cloud-based services. And when we came out of that offsite, it became very clear that we needed to have a more compelling vision. And that's when we started talking about target markets, segments, who would we go after first? Who did we need to solve this problem for first so that we could identify what product market fit looked like? And like reflecting back now on that time, it feels like a really obvious sort of solution and direction to go in was the, the subscription side of things. Did you get to that point when you were doing all of this work where it's like, okay, this is definitely the route we need to go to? Or was it always a little bit like, oh, could you know could work or could not work yeah well we knew that we wanted to have some sort of subscription service so one of the challenges that we had internally was because we uh, released our products on such long product cycles 
we let's say a new technology came about and we wanted to release a feature or capability that would address that new technology because we had such long release cycles and because people would pay for that product once we released it we really didn't have the ability financially to release features in the interim um, otherwise we would have to recognize that revenue ratably and it was like very complex financial accounting uh, uh, implications so we really had to look at a different business model, a different way of approaching that. And subscription, because you're charging, um, you're charging in a recurring manner. Uh, we knew that we could support our need to innovate in the middle of the cycle, so to speak, because we would be charging for recurring um, revenue based on that recurring value that we were delivering to the customer. Um, not. Fun, sexy stuff to think about, especially <laughs> as it relates to product. But it really was something that was a critical, critical decision. Uh, and it really allowed us to rethink how we would provide that value to people. I think it's really interesting because often people talk about product market fit. Um, but I heard a, a while ago, and um, I always, whenever I mention this, say to the person if you remember talking to me about it please tell me because I can't remember who told me about it um, that there's the obvious kind of like channel model side of things as well so when you're launching a business or a product you've got the product the market the channel and the model and those four things have to fit together in order for you to have a real opportunity to scale the business. So mm -hmm. it's really interesting that um, Adobe kind of went through this thing and obviously you were innovating in the other areas as well, but that the business model was like such a fundamental change at quite an established um, company, you know, like long in, I don't know how long Adobe's been around for, but it feels like a long time to me. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, when when they went through this transformation, um, you know, the company had been around 25 years. And in software world, that's a really, really long time. Yeah. You yeah. know, I mean, I, re I remember back in the day, I, you know, our manuals were this thick. Um, just everything was different. And uh, I, I give the senior leadership team a tremendous amount of credit for having the, the fortitude, the guts, um, the willingness to really move in that direction, um, especially when, you know, what got them there uh, was not anything to do with what they needed to do in the future. So yeah. I thought that was uh, very, um, very brave. So, you know, the, when you were doing this, this was, you know, for people who don't remember, Adobe was like the most loved product for people in the creative area at that time. It was the, and the entire world wasn't online and verbal about it the way they are now. But you were dealing with, you know, an, a, a, a passionate group of people who are uh, emotionally able to articulate that and would, you know, any changes to the product that they owned was going to be massive. Similar, what we're seeing, you know, in real time this week, that's what's happening with Twitter, what's mm -hmm. happening with some, some other things. So when you're trying to make a, a change like this, how do you pick your your target markets and your target customers? How do you start? Inevitably, things are going to get out. You're going to be working out loud. How do you how do you work with them? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I will say this, you know, especially given everything that we're reading in the news about some of the major changes at the companies that you called out this week. I mean, even at the time we were going through this transformation, there was a change.org petition. There were many, many people who were not happy. So I don't want it. I don't want anyone to think that, 
you know, we introduced this idea and people were like, yay, you really got it. And we nailed it 100% because that is just not the case. Um, there were um, there were many people who were upset. There were also many people who didn't understand how when you buy a piece of software at the time, you're only buying a license to it. You're not you're not owning that software. You're buying a license to use it. And if you think about it, subscription is the same thing. You're buying a subscription. You're subscribing to the right to use that product. But most people don't think about it that way. They think of, I purchased the product. I have the CDs in my hand or the DVDs in my hand, and I can use it you know, in perpetuity. Um, and so getting over that was a really big deal. In terms of char- uh, figuring out that target market, we, uh, the way that we did our segmentation is we had the world of creative professionals. And there were probably less than 10 million creative professionals on a worldwide basis that we had identified. And there were sub-segments that were part of that, which was uh, freelance graphic designers, web designers, web developers, professional videographers, professional photographers. There were all these different sub-segments. The largest segment, sub-segment that we had were graphic designers. And at the time, most of the products that I was responsible for kind of fell within the purview of graphic designers. So we decided that um, that's where we would start. It also happened to be one of the largest segments. And so our hypothesis was, if we can solve the problem for Marissa, that was the name of the persona that represented the freelance graphic designer, Uh, If we can solve it for her, uh, our hypothesis was that we could solve this for everybody. So that was kind of how we identified that particular target segment. Were you were you worried about the people you were working with that they were going to be vocal about it in a way, or or something that you or things getting out before you were ready about controlling the messaging? Um. Not so much about um, the messaging. I mean, there were people who were uh, detractors internally and people who were detractors externally as well. I would say that um, one of the people who did the best job of evangelizing, and this was after we started getting momentum, we decided on the product strategy, and now we had to convince everyone that we're confident that this is the right way to go. Um, he actually was um, ultimately became head of the creative division. His name's David Wadwani. He left, was CEO of App Dynamics, then became a VC, and now he's back as president at the company. And uh, you know, he was instrumental in really evangelizing and getting people on board that this was the right decision to make. And and he sat on the executive committee, which is very very helpful. And he very uh, strong background, both in terms of product and engineering and business. So he was like the perfect uh, evangelist to kind of get everyone on board. And he was also helpful with major uh, companies that we needed to get on board as well. So we've seen with Adobe, as you said earlier, there were lots of kind of forces at work that um, instigated this innovation across the company. With companies like Twitter and Meta, as Randy mentioned earlier, there's slightly different forces at work <laughs> um, with you know a, a new CEO coming into Twitter and you know with a very different idea of what that business should be about. Do you draw any parallels between kind of your experience at Adobe and what 
the people at Twitter might be going through? Like, is there anything to learn from going through a, a transformation like that, regardless of where the forces are coming from? Yeah, well, I, I think it's true that whenever a large organization introduces new leadership, there's always going to be, you know, that churning period. And uh, you know, there's going to be people who just don't buy into the new way of doing things. And I think that I think that that's perfectly natural. We see it in a lot of the companies that we work with, uh, where you have more traditional organizations, and then you have a technologist come in and uh, try to introduce a different way of working or a different approach. And immediately you're going to have some sort of conflict and you have to manage through that change. Um, I imagine the fact that those companies that you mentioned are doing it on the world stage um, in real time is exponentially more difficult because, you know, everyone's basically, all the pundits are overanalyzing every move that's being made and it's, in, you know, it's in the public domain which fortunately I've never experienced that. Um, but I can only imagine that I imagine people lose a lot of sleep over it. <laughs> it's ironic that it's all being shared on the platforms that they created. <laughs> I, know. I know. I know. So let's, let's, let's take it back to someplace where you might have a little more control. So in, in a B2B world, how do you start getting the other teams on, on side? I'm, I'm assuming it's the sales team. That's usually the one that's, potentially hit the hardest and is the most, uh, the hardest one to get on side. Yeah. I mean, I think um, one of the most critical roles in B2B companies and one that's not undervalued, but uh, least understood is the role of product marketing and how important product marketing is to product and the go-to-market and the success or lack of success of a product. So um, one of the things that we, I've done this, um, I would say all the way back to Netscape days when we were delivering enterprise uh, products to other software organizations, um, product marketing, similar to the empowered product team model, where you need to have product management, your tech lead and a lead designer product marketing, in my opinion, also needs to have a seat at the table because usually, especially for B2B businesses, the go-to-market is incredibly complex and product marketing is responsible for making sure the sales team is on board, making sure that all the sales tools are created, making sure that the channel understands how to receive the product so that we can successfully land it in the market. And I think most organizations just don't have clarity on what that role is all about and um, how it can have such a positive impact on the business. So if you're introducing or if you th feel like you need to introduce this role into your team and into your business, what's the kind of key sort of skill set of a really good product marketeer? Are they basically, you know, the same as a product manager, but just more focused on marketing? Or is it a, is it a different type of skill? I think it's a different type of skill. Uh, in, and you already know this, but Martina just wrote about this in her book, Loved. It's, um, she says that there's four basic skill sets that a product marketer needs to have. They need to be an ambassador, which means they need to connect the market insights to the team so that all that context that I just shared with you about which was really forcing the decision to go to that kind of transformation was um, based on those market insights. So a lot of times product marketing, they're closer to the customer in some cases and certainly closer to the market insights. They can feed that back to the team to provide that information. Um, there's also the strategist aspect of product marketing where um, they are really about directing 
that go-to-market strategy. So what are the appropriate channels to have? Sometimes it even incurs pricing. What's the ideal price point for that channel? How do we, um, how do we accomplish our uh, financial goals? Then there's the storyteller component where, and that's what people usually think of, quite frankly, when they think of product marketing, which is the messaging, the positioning, the value proposition. Why should you care about this in the first place? And then uh, the fourth area that she talks about a lot is the evangelist role, which is making sure that every step along that channel, they're equipped to understand the message. It's that sales enablement. It's making sure corporate marketing knows. It's making sure that those other functional teams are really aligned with how to successfully land the product into the hands of customers. And and quite frankly, this is true for B2B. It's also in, true for internal products, because even for companies who are building uh, products that their internal employees are using, most of those products aren't successful because we haven't rolled them out to get the level of adoption that we want. And so you know, I, I think that last mile is just so critically important. And usually we have to think of that at the beginning uh, of the product process and of that definition phase and that discovery phase. So I think one of the other things that might be a challenge for people with go-to-market is, you know, we, we're thinking roadmaps or we try to think in roadmaps in terms of uh, not specific dates of let's solve the problem and do now, next, later, and things like that. But go-to-market is a finely crafted campaign at a certain point. You actually have deadlines and you have dates. Yeah. So how do you iterate, you know, as, you, as you're developing and getting to, to the place, if you discover new things, if you make changes to the product, if you learn things about the, the audience that you're doing, how do you communicate and, and make those changes? Do people get whiplash and lose, uh, you know, do they lose confidence in, in the product team if you're making changes? How do you yeah. keep them on side? Well, there's a few different ways that you can um, manage both of those. I don't think that releasing capabilities and releasing features is the same thing as launching them and introducing them to your customer. So you can either put items behind features behind feature flags. Um, you can manage how you roll out those features. But the go-to-market, you know, if you're in a product team and you don't have enough time to basically build uh, a solution to the problem that you're being tasked to solve then you might need to prioritize a different problem, especially if the go-to-market team isn't equipped to land that feature successfully. So that, that's why you have to have that type of coordination. If you have a highly sensitive customer base where they are using their your features and your product in their daily workflow, and it's mission critical that that not be disrupted, that's going to have significant go-to-market implications as well. Um, you're not going to want to expose those items until you're sure that the customer can actually receive those items. It doesn't mean that you can't release them and put them behind a feature flag and then prepare the customer base. There's lots of different ways that you can mitigate that. Um, but you call it a very important thing is you have to think about that when you're building product. You can't just willy-nilly release those items and then wonder why it hasn't landed successfully. Willy-nilly, that's a technical term. <laughs> I like it. If you release a product in the forest and nobody hears. <laughs> That's right. Well, it's true, though. I mean, I, I think a, a lot of people, you know, and we can talk about sales led growth or market or uh, product led growth. I mean, I think it's more and more people are thinking about how to drive product led growth, which is fantastic. But there's a point in time where you might have to switch to sales led growth. Um, so there's a lot of companies who have gone through that. 
Can, just for anyone who doesn't know the difference, because of course we do, but for anyone who doesn't, can you just run down, I think it is a really important thing, can you run down what is the difference between sales-led and product-led growth? Yeah, so product, product-led growth is basically where the, uh, the product team is responsible for really driving the growth. Um, and so the work that they're doing in product is really having a significant impact on that growth. So great examples of uh, product-led growth business models are freemium models where you have a, you know, a large audience of customers and then you're looking for some sort of conversion point to convert to the revenue growth of that product. Whereas when you have sales-led growth or you know, marketing-led growth products, you're highly reliant on a sales team and that go-to-market team to really drive those growth numbers. Sometimes you're going to have, you know, customer success, you're going to have outside sales, you're going to have a different approach um, to how you drive that growth for the business overall. And in some organizations, you have both, right? Um, Many, many organizations basically take that two-pronged approach. So in the kind of B2B SaaS world, as a um, working in an e-commerce business, we've kind of signed up a few different um, SaaS providers to third-party providers for, for different tools that we use. Um, and mm-hmm. there seems to be a very slick onboarding process for each of these different businesses with, um, you know, face-to-face time, but for, for quite small, like, annual payments as well. Do, do you feel like there's a trend more towards the kind of the hands-on looking after customers, that that kind of experience of onboarding versus, you know, self-service, look-after-yourself version? Yeah, I, th- I think most companies, it depends on where they are in their growth trajectory. Um, most companies you know, from a product-led growth perspective, usually you're going to start with some sort of trial and then you're looking for that conversion point where they basically move to becoming that premium customer, that paid customer. Um, I think for, especially for B2B businesses, usually they like to have someone that they can get in contact with. And whether that's a customer success representative or a sales representative, most of the time, at least from what I've witnessed, you're not actually having a dedicated rep unless you're at a very, very large scale. And we're talking enterprise class uh, implementations. But I think a lot of those small to mid-sized range, more and more they're having customer success help encourage them through that onboarding uh, process. Sometimes it's automated. Sometimes it's not automated. Sometimes the customer thinks it's automated, but it's really manual behind the scenes. I mean, there's a lot of different approaches that I've seen um, with different uh, size product organizations. Do you think that makes it harder for new players to kind of come into the market because they're not just having to compete with like feature parity or whatever with, um, you know, with existing businesses, but also with this workforce that's also giving uh, like a custom onboarding experience to different, yeah, to different customers? Yeah, I mean, I, I heard this VC talk about this um, once where he uh, talked about there's three phases of a, of a product organization. There's the startup phase, there's the grow up phase, and there's the scale up phase. I don't think in the startup phase, uh, we're even considering anything beyond self-service, right? You're still trying to identify product market fit. You're still trying to make sure that there's a viable market and a viable product. And, you know, those two things are going to connect. And I don't know how you could even afford to have, you know, a significant B2B sales organization. 
I think in the grow up phase, you're starting to make those decisions in terms of how you want to scale the organization. You know, are all your assumptions right? Where do we want to lend, um, you know, funding as part part of that go to market strategy? And then the scale up phase, I think, is where most organizations um, do decide to invest. Um, and obviously, I'm speaking in very general terms, but um, you know, I think that's really when people. Zendesk is a great example of this, right? Early on, it was very much focused on product-led growth. And then as it matured and became the de facto standard, then it really was able to mature uh, with more of a direct team. And we have time just for one really quick question left. Leah, I always really like asking um, people who have the benefit of like your experience where you work across multiple different companies and you get to see a lot of what's going on in the product world what are your sort of um ones to watch um in terms of product companies like b2b SaaS, or whatever it is like that you're like really excited about what they're doing and where they're headed yeah i mean i'm gonna speak just um I had the best week last week working with a division of Spotify specifically. It was the Soundtrap team who are building creative tools for um, artists. And I just, uh, it really, I found the entire experience to be really inspiring in terms of what they're trying to do. Just a really fantastic team and um, they're just doing great things. Amazing. So you heard it here first. Keep an eye on that Spotify soundtrack team. <laughs> See what they produce. No pressure, team. <laughs> yeah. Um, Leah, thank you so much. It's been so great talking to you today. Thank you. It's always great to see you too. The product experience is the first and the best podcast from Mind the Product. Our hosts are me, Lily Smith. And me, Randy Silver. Lou Ron Pratt is our producer and Luke Smith is our editor. Our theme music is from Hamburg-based band POW, that's P-A-U. Thanks to Arnie Kittler, who curates both Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and who also plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. You can connect with your local product community via Product Tank, regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide. If there's not one near you, maybe you should think about starting one. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash product tank. Mm-hmm.